a minor key is always interlaced with major keys. The minor works the major from within. What must be remembered is this. Neither the minor nor the major are fixed in advance. The major is a structural tendency that organizes itself according to predetermined definitions of value. The minor is a force that courses through it, unmooring its structural integrity, problematizing its normative standards. The unwavering belief in the major as a site where events occur, where events make a difference, is based on accepted accounts of what registers as change, as well as existing parameters for gauging the value of that change. Yet, while the grand gestures of a macro-politics most easily sum up the changes that occurred to alter the field, it is the minoritarian tendencies that initiate the subtle shifts that created the conditions for this and any change. The grand is given the status it has not because it is where the transformative power lies, but because it is easier to identify major shifts than it is to catalog the nuanced rhythms of the minor. As a result, these rhythms are narrated as secondary or even negligible. The minor is a continual variation on experience. It has a mobility not given to the major. Its rhythms are not controlled by a pre-existing structure, but open to flux. In variation is in change indeterminate. But indeterminacy, because of its wildness, is often seen as unrigorous, flimsy, its lack of solidity mistaken for a lack of consistency. The minor thus gets cast aside, overlooked, or forgotten in the interplay of major chords. This is the downside of the minor, but also its strength, that it does not have the full force of a pre-existing status, of a given structure, of a predetermined metric to keep it alive. It is out of time, untimely, rhythmically inventing its own pulse. Welcome to Reciprocal Presupposition, Episode 9, The Minor Gesture with Aaron Manning. We are broadcasting through the facilities of Trent Radio on 92.7 FM CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Joshua Nwazu. Reciprocal Presupposition is a political talk show that emerges from the idea that relationality or the connections and interactions between people and our environments should form the basis for thinking about politics today. Reciprocal presupposition engages challenging subjects in the fields of politics, ethics, philosophy, and media theory, all while striving to stay accessible to non-academic listeners. Regular conversations with special guests, including writers, academics, students, and artists, help us unpack the pressing issues that define technological capitalism today. This is where the rubber of political theory hits the road of real-life media practice. This week's show is a feature interview with mover, thinker, philosopher, artist, and professor Aaron Manning. 
Last week, I had the honor of talking with Professor Manning at her home in Montreal in a conversation that, while centering around her recently released book, The Minor Gesture, ranged widely, touching on subjects as diverse as weightlifting, Aikido, depression and mental illness, neurodiversity, and navigating the neoliberal university. It wouldn't be easy to introduce Erin Manning with the standard listing of official accreditations and accomplishments. She's an incredibly dynamic and respected artist, writer, teacher, speaker, and activist, to name only a few of the movement ecologies she inhabits prolifically. It may be important to note that she is the research chair of philosophy and relational art and associate professor of studio arts and film studies at Concordia University, or that her gorgeous and challenging multimedia artworks have been performed and exhibited at major exhibitions all over the world. Or to mention that she's a passionately dedicated professor whose unconventional style and infectious energy attract and inspire students and co-conspirators to her courses and to the para-academic research creation hub, the Sense Lab, which she directs. But I could also mention, as she reveals in this interview, that Erin Manning has 10 years of experience in Aikido, or that she, like so many of us, has struggled with depression. What's clear is there's no one best way to describe a person like Erin Manning. For me, what resonates most strongly about Erin Manning is her extraordinary, even radical generosity. Speaking and thinking with her is profoundly enlightening, not because of a wisdom that she dispenses unidirectionally, but because of the generative vivaciousness of thought and energy that she elicits from the relational exchange. She is exceptionally kind. Because of that, and because I was curious what she would make of a question from left field, I started our conversation with a proposition about lifting weights. I asked her to speculate on the relationship between movement, volition, and intensity, mm-hmm. and the way that we can't actually discern any kind of quantifiable measure of intensity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's sort of a post-facto experience of, of some kind of conscious experience that we then label as such and such movement, mm-hmm. such and such mm-hmm. discrete thing. And I, this has always come up for me with your work in the context of, of dance, because I know that's something you're invested in. But for me, I don't do anything like that, I, although sometimes I wish I did. One of the things that I'm really interested in now is weightlifting mm-hmm. and in moving heavier and heavier weights. And I'm curious how, I haven't been able to figure it out yet, and I saw in this passage that maybe there's an access point, how we can apply some of these ideas about volition and agency and movement to something like the experience of, of bodily moving re, uh, resistance of a weight. Mm. Mm. What do you think about that? Can you, can you see any, any parallels or do you think it's like a huge jump to go from mm. the fluid movement of dance Mm-mm. to like getting under a squat bar? Yeah, I love these um, thought experiments. So let's see, if we take it a step back, I'll start with Aikido. Because mm-hmm. maybe Aikido gets us into a place where we're talking about both of those things. Mm-hmm. So the, so in Aikido, have you ever done Aikido? No. no. So in Aikido, um, the premise is that you respond to an attack with the momentum of the attacker's mm-hmm. attack. Right. So rather than re- resisting the attack, you actually allow the attack to follow its own um, unfolding. Yeah. Um, which sounds all flowy, except in the act, somebody's mm. actually attacking you, and it doesn't right. feel so. And um, and so sort of counterintuitive. You, you want to block it. Yeah, and um, so I did a lot of quite serious Aikido for about a decade, 
And it's absolutely central to how I think about movement. The only reason I stopped Aikido is that I have a body that can be very um, hurt by Aikido because I'm very flexible. Mm. And um, so my joints are, are ultra flexible. And in a practice that is constantly working at the limit of your joints, I don't feel the pain quickly enough. Yeah. And so it Except can really on, affect it shows up it, exactly, two days later. or you know, for the rest of your life. But right. but the principles of Aikido. So working with the movement, which I would now call a sort of a movement ecology, hmm. becoming sensitive to the movement ecology is really the practice of Aikido. If if you look at the advanced practitioners of Aikido, so beyond the black belt. They practice um, what's called rendori, which is multiple attackers. And the, the concepts that, that I've worked with over the years about movement ecologies are very influenced by that. Because when you have, say, five attackers coming at you, you're trained to understand that if you go frontally into the attack, you can only frontally do that with one. The other four will come at you. Mm-hmm. So you need to actually work in the constellation rather than in the individual orientation. And so without ever using this vocabulary, what they're talking about is a kind of imminent choreography. You use the phrase choreographic thinking. Yeah, you really have to think choreographically, right? Mm-hmm. So you, what you have to do, and I'm not saying that I'm, a, you know, I'm good at this, I'm not, but what you have to do is, is allow a certain withdrawal of yourself, of your mm-hmm. individuality, of your intentionality from the arena of the movement in order to recompose with it. Right. And what that means will always be pragmatically different, right? So, so taking that example to help me think through, because I've never lifted a weight in my life. Right. Except for the weight of your body. Except for the weight of my body. Well, I've been to the gym like six times or something, but I don't think that counts. I would say that, oh, the one thing I wanted to say about the, the, the Aikido is that the professor who most influenced me was a, a woman who was in her 60s when I met her. And really didn't appear to be someone who would be good at Aikido. She was just a little bit overweight, um, had trouble walking, had joint issues. But on the mat, she was extraordinary. And you could really see the practice of getting out of the way mm-hmm. in, in, um, yeah, in real time. Right. So obviously, if you're standing behind the weight, or beneath the weight, or above the weight, is, yeah. it doesn't feel from a pragmatic perspective, as though there's anything getting out of the way. Mm-hmm. But I wonder whether, in order to do this work, there, ha- there doesn't have to be a kind of relational field that is set up that mobilizes a complementarity between mm-hmm. the weight and the body, right. so that the body isn't sort of understood as a separate artifact of, uh, from the weight. There yeah. has to be some kind of ecology in which the idea of what effort means is challenged. Right. And I suspect it's the case in anything. I mean, yeah. people who lift cars, they're not yeah. really lifting the car. Yeah, they're, they're lifting this whole, this whole assemblage of car, person, environment. Exactly, everything. exactly. So how do you train for that? Well, again, I mean, I would go to a martial arts. I probably, you're not going to get a lot of good training around that mm. in a training that focuses along the individual. Yeah. Right? Except if you, which is a good jumping off point, because unless you problematize and break open the concept of the individual and recognize it is not what so often we fall back on, right. which I think is in some ways a straw man that we poke holes at and it never has existed and it doesn't currently exist, but 
we use it as a shorthand so often that we start to believe it. Yeah. And we believe that this one guy is going to go in and lift this weight or do the, whatever this thing is. Yeah. But to think of it as a whole, an ecosystem or even just an assemblage, one, one entity that forms in the process of lifting that weight contingently for that moment. Absolutely. And I think they do talk about that in weightlifting, especially in Olympic weightlifting, which I don't know if you're familiar with. is a lot more dynamic and crazy. They do this clean and jerk <laughs> and the snatch. Um, amazing movements. But they talk about the weightlifter weight system. And ah. it becomes, you have to consider yourself integrally attached to the bar because otherwise you get, just from, from a physical perspective, you get separated out mm-hmm. and you, you get out of your center of gravity and you lose your balance and so mm-hmm. on. But also in terms of how you perceive the experience, I think that what you're talking about is a lot this, this experience of letting go of your sense of individuality. Yeah. I know that there's um, a really interesting work around swimming like that as well at Olympic swimming that um, I once met an Olympic swimmer who said that um, it was a great moment who told me that the uh, Australian swimming team works with some of my writing around uh, pre-acceleration mm. in relationscapes in order to think about the, the 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 lived relation between the water and the body in the swimming and uh, of course I mean when I say that they don't work with it what I mean is that they might not in a lot of cases, what I find with movers is that they don't need to put into language what they right. what they feel. It, mm. And language is a bit of a, a detour. Right. And so there's this incredible lived experience, this deep, deep knowledge of complexity and movement that every mover I've ever known experiences. Right. That said, I'm currently doing a, a series of about 30 private classes with a yoga instructor because it's clear to me that the yoga that's taught is counterproductive in a lot of ways to a healthy body. That's not yoga's fault, but it, it's that shorthands have been developed in language that yeah. may mm, trouble the potential of the, right. what the so form can do, right? Maybe an example might be people entering, doesn't matter what the brand or, or a particular sect of yoga, but they might be thinking about achieving a particular flexibility goal or they might be thinking about reaching some kind of state, particular labeled state of mind or something like this, which is not problematic in and of themselves, yeah. but they have certain effects, exactly. which maybe are not the only thing that the practice called yoga can achieve or can exactly. access. Exactly. So I think it's, it, it takes a little bit more work to think about the complexity of, of the ecology beyond something like form. Mm-hmm to get to the question of intensity. So you began on this question yeah. of intensity as well, which Bergson is trying to think through in terms of the relation between effort and sound in relation to music. So what is it that we hear? What is it that we hear by not listening? What is it that we hear by listening? And so on. And there are all kinds of gradients there. We tend to be taught that a certain kind of effort um, is equal to a certain amount of work. And I find myself incredibly um, seduced by that. Um, We have a tendency to think of intensity as more. Whereas I think intensity is is differential more than it's more. Right? So, and, and, and it's a similar question with the feeling of effort, which is why in the minor gesture I go to both James and Bergson on the question. It's one of those, also those great rare moments where um, 
one thinker takes up another thinker uh, across the divide of culture, which, mm -hmm. which rarely happens. The French and the Anglophone traditions rarely speak to one another that way. But um, the question that I would have to come back to the weightlifting question or the question of the relationship between agency and, and intensity and intentionality and volition is in, in the sort of powering through that is given a lot of um, value from our culture, there is probably a backgrounding of qualities of intensity. And when people get very um, adept in their arenas, movement arenas, even if they're not articulating the necessity for intensity, they're finding techniques for it. You right. know, um, because powering through doesn't give you the um, suppleness right. that you need in order to, yeah, um, yeah in order to do something um, slightly differently from how you did it before, to beat your own so record. Which or, looks like verifiably or empirically like weight added to the bar, but you don't know that. Exactly. One of the techniques that people use is they have their training partners add weight to the bar unbeknownst to them, wow. and they don't necessarily experience the difference because right. it's all inside their perceptive faculties, whether right. it's weight heavy or not. Another thing is there's a really popular book called Becoming a Supple Leopard, Ah. which is by a physiotherapist and coach who is encouraging people to do just that okay. to weightlifting. When we were finished with our first attempt at the philosophy of weightlifting, I asked Erin Manning about her recently released book, The Minor Gesture. You, you start with the, the terminology of keys. Is there, is there a musical <laughs> insert in there or is that just a kind of coincidence? No. Because it doesn't sound musical when I read what you're saying. Yeah, I am... I, um... I think that my writing practice is always to some degree influenced by the idea of something like the symphonic. I, I do everything out loud, I write out loud. Really? Uh-huh. Uh, and I read out loud. So I, as I'm writing I speak it out and every time anything comes close to being finished I, I read it out loud to somebody. And. Um, and I've always thought of my work as best read out loud, although I'm fully aware that it's really rare that anybody will read a philosophical book out loud. I'll try it. Um, On the radio, maybe. <laughs> so when I was trying to think about the minor and the major, it seemed to me, well, I also play music. I mean, I play the piano and I've played the cello. So it seemed to me intuitive to think about major and minor keys in terms of listening to what is just on the edge of the harmonic or listening to what is just on the edge of the disharmonic right. or where is the polyphony there what what can stand out and and for me and of course you know i'm speaking speculatively and and in the best case scenario but most of my friends and most of the people i learn from are not academics or philosophers they're dancers they're movers they're movement practitioners um musicians and I always hope that the work, if they didn't linger too much in trying to capture it at the philosophic level, that it could maybe do some work at another level. Okay. And that's always my wish. That's, yeah. You know, that right. work can function in those two ways. Okay, so with the, with the minor, and, or the minor gesture, and the different ways of phrasing the concept, one of the things that 
there was one of the few points where I kind of raised my eyebrow in a, in a question. I wondered how to work around this thing, which is if we take something like your book and we want to foreground the minor, we want to emphasize it, and this maybe sounds simplistic to you, but is there, is there a danger of reifying it mm -hmm. and then just simply transforming it into, into the major? Mm -hmm. And in, in that process, that might be a fine thing to do. We might mm -hmm. identify things that are conventionally minor that we then want to draw attention to because they've been suppressed or because we need to pay mm -hmm. more attention to them. Um, but I wonder, is, is there theoretically and philosophically a bit of a catch there in emphasizing the one, not necessarily over the other, but more than the other at a given moment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And hopefully when you read the whole book, that question will come up really clearly because oh, nice. it does, it does, uh, it is addressed directly. Oh, but really? okay. a, a couple of things I would say is becomes clear, I, I hope, when somebody reads the book. The, the key chapter, not the key chapter of the book, but the key chapter for me, the, the chapter that got me writing the book, is um, a chapter called Weather Patterns. Or, um, and it came out of my own experience of doing an art installation, which I felt didn't work. Okay. It, I knew, because it, my work tends to be serial, so there's a, there's a change that happens from one iteration to the next, but there's continuity as well. And, and, and in an earlier serial you know, continuation of that particular piece, which was called, um, the, the collection was called Slow Clothes, the piece was called Stitching Time. Mm, I saw an, some of it. An earlier iteration, or even several earlier iterations, had, I think, been quite successful in terms of activating techniques and propositions that were important to me and to the work. In 2012, I, I did a very large, what I, what I thought was last iteration of the work at the Sydney Biennale. And it, it was an extraordinary experience, very difficult for me, um, and, and really extraordinary. It was very difficult because I was there eight hours a day for three months dealing with the public. And um, all kinds of things surfaced for me around... Uh, confusion about what it means to be a public and what it means to be an artist that desires a public right. and what kind of behavior you can accept from the public or don't want to accept from the public and my work in that in that art installation was to give my time yeah. and I gave my time by making garments for people if they wanted garments made but it wasn't announced anywhere that that's what I was doing so it was a 3,000 square foot installation that you could sit in and sleep in and read in and have tea in and so on but if you evolved into wanting to make a garment, I could be there to help. And if I were there to help, I would spend the time it took and you could go home with it. Mm. And so usually I spend about a week per garment. People had to discover that this was available yeah, by right. involving themselves. And usually I would design a garment for them for like, say, two or three days. These garments were, des the, the, the collection has magnets and buttons and buttonholes. So they and, and so I would say spend two or three days working with them until I was getting to know them a bit better until I realized that I wasn't making the right garment. And then we'd start again and then we'd finish it. No mirrors. How did you know if it was not the right garment or not? Uh, I could tell when after two or three days they became a little bit less polite and I got to know <laughs> them a bit better. And then I'd think, oh, I started in the wrong place or whatever. And so I could spend, like say I spent 30 hours with someone making a garment. Then they would take it home. So they would receive maybe five to ten pieces of the collection. Each piece took us, me or us, some of it was collectively made. Each piece was between five and eight hours. So they would receive just in the, in the actual textile, 
maybe 50 hours of our wow. time. Plus they would receive 30 hours of my time. But right. I would also receive 30 hours of their time, right? right? I didn't discuss any of this with them, but it was an incredible gift of, of time, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, when they took it home, it would collapse because it's not like it was sewn. It was magnets and buttonholes. And so then they would have to redo the process somehow, right? So it was incredibly rich. And, 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 and like I said, confronting too, because sometimes people would come and say, I heard that you're giving away free clothes. And then I, you know, it was exactly not what I wanted right. to do. That's, and so on. You didn't want it to be the object of people's desire. No. So I ended up, so the, the, there's a chapter in the book that talks about that a little bit called artfulness and the art of participation. But the next year I was invited to the Moscow Biennale and I, the curator, when the curator invited me, I said to her, well, I, the work's kind of done. And she said, no, 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 save some and bring it to the Moscow Biennale. So I had this show at the Moscow Biennale, which was, I think, quite beautiful. I mean, it's hard for this work not to be beautiful because the fabrics are so beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, but it was dead. And, um, and you, you knew that the whole time. And I knew it the whole time. And so I lost all my confidence. That's what you need <laughs> to do stuff. Yeah, and afterwards I felt really quite depressed. And, and I thought, that's where the concept of the minor gesture started appearing. So okay. there was no minor gesture in Moscow. And so all this to say that I don't think you can make a minor gesture. Mm. The minor gesture has to emerge through the conditions of a work, which are very complex, through the psychology. So while there might be a sense of reifying the minor, as in it's maybe more potentializing, and I say all of those things in the book, it's not like you can make it. It's not yours to create. Right. So, you and know, it, it kind of eludes any kind of potential reification because it, if it's the minor, then it's not reified. It's not there. Exactly. I so see, the I question see. is, how can we create the conditions for a more acute um, sensitivity mm -hmm. to the minor? And so I finished the book on an account of Idle No More in Indigenous Politics in Canada. And I think I'm hoping through that it becomes clear that... I think if you look at, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking quickly to a longer chapter, but if you look at the way that the reconciliation narrative has happened in Canada, what you see is a grand gesture. You see Harper going forward right. with this grand gesture. It's all in the open. It's all it, it's, above ground. Yeah. And it doesn't touch in any way the complex minor vectors of indigenous resistance. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I'm not saying we shouldn't have a reconciliation narrative. But to think that you could speak, in my opinion, disingenuously to the indigenous peoples of Canada and say, you know, let's reconcile without having any follow through on, on the missing um, women and, and yeah. girls, etc., etc., and no sensitivity to the complex minor gestures that are constantly at work across territories. Yeah. Um, is to depoliticize what is already on the ground. Right, which in some ways I think is, is actually the objective of some of the major movements that come on the surface, yeah. is just to disempower the undercurrents that are actually the more relevant areas. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. can see what you're saying. I like what you're talking about with this sort of elusive, the elusiveness of the minor, because it does kind of address exactly what, I'm, what I was pondering about why we what or what danger there might be in, in turning our gaze to it you know if mm -hmm. you turn your gaze to it then it slips away sort of kind of thing mm -hmm. um but i think that what you're describing is a kind of a, a a careful practice of intentional awareness where you might not actually you might not actually be fully 
frontally addressing it like you mm-hmm. talked about in Aikido, but yeah, it's right. you're it's there maybe in the non-conscious totally. formative aspect of your experience. Yeah, it's, like it maybe goes back to the question of the qualities of intensity and and I mean I think we need to always be aware as uh, Guattari tells us so well in the in Chaosmosis that microfascisms are everywhere. So you, you can't ever, with any of these concepts, describe them as though they were dead weight. Mm-hmm. They have to be activated. Yeah. And the conditions of their activation are always going to have to be troubled again, right? So, so I think your question is so important. Um, and it's perhaps a place where, where um, I see the most continuous misreading of process philosophy. Okay. That people have a there can be a tendency to take the terms of process philosophy as givens, deterritorialization, reterritorialization, yeah. smooth, strided, etc., as though they were something. But they're tendencies, right? And, right? They, and they do have to exist in a, in a relationship of reciprocal presupposition. Exactly. In, in the sense that you couldn't have the minor without the major. So it's not a matter totally. of discarding the major. That's an yeah. impossible concept. It doesn't exactly. make any sense. And it also, it's not the case that the minor is smaller than the major, or that, you know, the, here we need Nietzsche to remind us to go beyond good and evil. We really need to understand that every major institution or every major tendency um, is interspersed and troubled and undone and right. by minor tendencies. So in that sense, it's important to also rephrase what I said earlier and acknowledge that it's not so much that the minor is suppressed because that implies that there's, well, maybe it's suppressed, but it's, it implies that there's a kind of a, a more true ontology to the major there's a more real existence of something on the surface but in fact it can't be that way without those destabilizing undercurrents that problematize it and that that create these other tendencies that seem to be opposed to it but in fact animate it also from the outside exactly and so the question would be if something feels more visible or if something feels more real or if something, you know, when people say in the real world, mm-hmm. for example, we hear this a lot in the institution of academia in the real world. Well, that means that there's a tendency to understand an orientation that would be more or less political. That tendency I'm interested in. Right. I don't think it's more real or less real. I think there's just a tendency to believe that it has more impact than, yeah. say, other which kinds has, of tendencies. Which exerts kind of effect. Yeah. In, a, in, an, in an ecology, not, a, not as a discrete object, but it is a sort of nodal point from which effects emerge or there's a sort of reciprocal flow as well. But, exactly. Um, the, the Buddhists I was referring to earlier, they, they talk a lot about convention. They, they disavow any, any solidity to any kind of concept or any mm-hmm. kind of reality or any mm-hmm. kind of meaning in language or anything, mm-hmm. including nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have to acknowledge the, some kind of conventional reality. So they don't... Okay. They don't actively say there's nothing mm-hmm. because there has to be the saying of nothing. So mm-hmm. they, it's that knife's edge again, where you're you're acknowledging the conventionality, but you're not you're not subscri- or not ascribing to it a, a true and permanent meaning. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's really relevant today when we look at how Black Lives Matter is working. I think about that all the time. That the gestures of hatred that are so visible in the race relations in the U.S., and I don't want to suggest for a second that there aren't the same or similar problems in Canada, mm-hmm. you know, as we see Black Lives Matter moving to Toronto yeah. and now Montreal. Uh, we just have fewer guns. But when we see this, if I were to say to an activist who's lost 
family members and friends to gun violence let us engage with the minor, they might think I'm totally crazy or depoliticizing. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be a, a, a silly way of entering into the conversation. That would not be a strategically you know, wise choice. No, but on the same time, at the same time, so there you have to really attend to how to, br on, uh, you know, to techniques to, to stop the, the, the systematic racism and violence that happens in a relationship to a black body before the black body has even been able to speak, before the black body has been able to identify itself even in the ecology in which it, in which it lives. Right. On the other hand, a lot of what we might talk about as minor tendencies have grown out of um, resistance that we might think of as black resistance. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the qualities of collaboration or collective work and so on are imbued with minor gestures. So I think we have to also be think, thinking always politically about where and when and how are these tendencies coming to appearance and when do we deploy certain forms of perception or sensation in relation to the kinds of problems that are, are brought up by them. What potential do you see emerging from this kind of ecological turn in the broadest sense to bypass or subvert conventional models of thinking about individuality? How can we root out the places where they do remain in our daily practices, even though a lot of people are coming to the realization, theoretically, we, it's sort of a native language to us to assume ourselves to be discrete mm -hmm. agents. How do, you, mm -hmm. how do you ferret that out? Or do you? Yeah. It's my experience, and maybe this is due to the work that the Sense Lab does in relation to social justice, that this is actually a period where there's more and more movement toward identity politics. Mm. So I'm having the opposite feeling right. from you. So let me just say, would that mean that there's that some of the stuff I'm talking about in, in maybe academic discourse is a response to or is it some kind of relationship to this problematic return to identity? Well, it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle to me. But my feeling is, in continuing with this idea of a certain sensitivity to the environment and a belief that the people on the ground, whoever they are, whatever they're doing, are doing work that is important, I don't want to dismiss... What I've been trying to think through is how to not become blindsided by my own necessity to think relation or my own strong, strong belief that the individual is not the place to begin. Mm -hmm. How to not be, how, how to not become insensitive to the necessities of a kind of politics of the individual. In a given given what's happening. Context, whatever. Yeah, so what I'm trying to think through right now and I haven't worked this out, so you're getting very, very fresh thoughts. Nice. What I'm trying to think through is at what point... I suppose this is what I've always been trying to think through, but I'm trying to think it more clearly in, all, in minor gesture and, and in my own work, mm -hmm. and my artwork and otherwise. What is at stake in the spectrum, in the arc of individuation, in anticipating something we might call the individual? So what I've always felt is that the problem with identity politics is that it assumes 
an individual before it assumes a world. And the problem with that is that there's no account of experience that makes sense to me where there would be an individual before a world. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the example that I gave you with Black Lives Matter, right now I'm thinking of, it, of something that happened yesterday. There was an autistic yeah. uh, in Florida playing on the street. His aide, who's black, comes out and gets shot. Yeah. He gets shot. And the officer says, I don't know why. I don't know why, <laughs> right? So he only gets shot because he's black. Yeah. There's no other reason. Right? So all of everything I'm saying about ecology falls apart. So this is an imposition from an outside. Right. The outside becomes the policer of identity. You might want to be walking in this sort of transversal subjectivity where you're not identifying one way or another, but someone else is going to slap you with it right. and shoot you. So that man would say to me, it's all fine and good, Aaron, what you're saying about individuation, but fuck, it hurt when I got shot. Right? I mean, so... I want to be sensitive to that. And I want to think, okay, under those conditions, there's this speedy orientation to identity. Right. It's like a... It, it, the identity trumps everything else. Yeah. Sorry to use that term. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pollute the term. Don't pollute. That's not what it means. <laughs> so I guess what I'm trying to think is really... In the... You know, I, I said earlier that we, I try to think in, in terms of speculative pragmatism. For me, this means that what happens, happens. It has yeah. effects. Yeah. But it carries this share of the more than. It carries this yeah. share of difference. So the, the event of this uh, autistic and this caretaker who happens to also be black who's shot is also... It is absolutely what it is in the description that we just gave, but it, it, it is also more. Mm -hmm. It is also... Um, and I don't mean quantitatively more, but qualitatively right. more. There's, it carries there's, more there's than other that. other ways to perceive the situation, which would be like you'd put on your special glasses and you'd see all the social undercurrents and historical undercurrents and everything. Exactly. That, that, the whole ecology of, of situations and practices that led to that moment. Exactly. Or that expresses itself as that moment. Totally. And what Fred Moten says is so interesting to me is that what is what is being killed in the U.S., just to use the U.S. as an example, is black life, mm -hmm. not black lives. Right. Black lives are dying. Yes. There's nobody's, nobody's uh, uh, you know, questioning that. But the, the, the black life, like the singular one black the thing body, that's being targeted. is emerging as a body in their death. But that's not what's being killed. What's right. being killed is the more than. I mean, this is really the argument that Fred Moten makes, is that black life has always been more than. It always has exceeded the category of identity as we understand the citizen or as we understand From the political subject. Of, of whiteness, or, the typicality of whiteness or exactly, whatever that exactly. has come so, to be. So what I would want to do is to, you know, what I'm hoping that I've, uh, so, you know, to some degree managed to articulate in the minor gesture is that everything matters including the identity. Mm -hmm. and But the question is, in that complex, to return to tell it, the story of it in the aftermath as though it were only a story of identity, right. it keeps us exactly there. It doesn't actually give us techniques to trouble that tendency. It's almost like we need to be thinking bilingually. Like, we need to be able yeah. to straddle different conceptions of the world and one being the conventional which tends to be the one that's oriented towards a, right. a given identity and is yep. a given identity yep. it reminds me of the idea of sex in judith butler 
yeah. where she identifies that it's before anything else. And same yeah. with blackness, and there's the whole yeah. idea of intersectionality. Yeah. You can't choose that, and yeah. you get it gets imposed on you. But at the same time, recognizing all the other things that are going into it, and, and yeah. sort of being able to see both at the same time, not exclude one or the other. Exactly. So it's it's long, long work, and I've been thinking in work that I've done since the minor gesture about having more complex ways of thinking the relationship between the front lines and the sidelines. Mm. Um, Reminds me of Aikido again. It's true, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, so, you know, some people, and not, not myself, are at the front lines. Mm -hmm. And the front lines are a very scary place to be, whether you're a Syrian refugee or a Syrian fighting in Syria or you're living in Baghdad or you're black walking in the streets of the US or or you're indigenous women in Canada or etc etc we can name infinitely trans people or whatever yeah so all of these cases are not necessarily when you're in the front lines a certain kind of rigidity enters into the process if you've ever been at the front of a, a demonstration when the when the, the becomes, police come, there's very a, oppositional. And it's oppositional. That's the dynamic of the situation. It has to be that in a way. It calls that into being. Exactly. And so, but there are a lot of sidelines. And there's work to be done on the Importance. sidelines. Yeah. And the sidelines are not about me. They're not about us. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the mistake that I can also sometimes make as an activist where I think I'm not doing enough. And I'm trying to really th undo that. That's an identity-based thinking. Yeah, for sure. So what is the work to be done? And how can it be done? And is there a way to prolong? And here I think of the work of the Design Studio for Social Intervention, which is a really interesting uh, studio in, in Boston that, that works as a kind of um, conduit between the, the folks on the ground the activists, the social justice activists, and, and you know, the funding bodies that would support um, work uh, in social justice. And, and they, they, their tendrils are, go in both directions. Okay. And the stakes for them are social justice stakes, and sometimes they are on the front lines, but a lot of the time they're creating the conditions for those front lines to occur, but they're right. not actually on the front lines. There's something I've heard about Black Lives Matter and other similar forms of movements that are coming sort of to a head now this is the the fruition of many years of long behind yeah. the scenes work that these the conditions for something like this to even be talked about wouldn't Absolutely. have been there 20 years ago and that was through the effort and through the labor and through the perseverance of, of people that maybe you would say are on the sidelines but it's because the front line hasn't come into being quite exactly. yet exactly so that's that's really what i'm trying to think and then what allows you know many of us i think who are white who want to be allies are facing a certain... I mean, I think as a white person, you face a, um, an important incomprehension. We've never been black. We've never known what it means we to be really policed. We don't really know what it is to be white either because it's, an, it's, it's designed to be an invisible identity exactly so what is it how else can we learn to listen or how else can we learn to support a sideline which is not a, again not about us not about our need to be seen or our need right. to make a difference but rather you know and this is very specifically what i'm trying to also think through in relation to neurotypicality and neurodiversity So, um, my friend, a good, well, this complex situation, who this person is to me, was my first love, and then it was a long period of not knowing them, but I've come into contact with them again, 
and they 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 are have had psychotic episodes, multiple hospitalizations, suicide attempts, and now recently has forsaken all meds and is experiencing what she refers to as fifth dimension consciousness and and I don't want to make any allusion to that and as if it were untrue I think actually I fully believe her and I fully support what she's doing and I and I identify strongly with what she what she's involved in because I think she's adopted the terminology of neurodiversity as well mm -hmm. and I know that you use it a lot with reference to autism and and autistics as examples of the neurodiverse mm -hmm. let's say but I want to see what you think how how would that concept applies maybe also to the idea of mental health and the mm -hmm. idea of mental illness and and mm -hmm. placing a new way of valuing and understanding mm -hmm. um, psychotics or schizophrenics mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. great question so there's a chapter on depression in the book and mental illness in relation to neurodiversity as well so Should have done this in like a two weeks <laughs> Um, because I suffer from mental illness, so I'm always thinking about that question. Um, and I'm medicated. I can't seem to be unmedicated. Interesting. Mm -hmm. okay. I've tried to get off my medication and the people who love me ask me to go back on it. And uh, so I really understand your friend. Um, I'm lucky in that my medication doesn't decrease or diminish the, found the, the right range. cocktail or balance or whatever it is. I'm just lucky. Yeah. I'm one of those very few people who has a real emotional affective range. It's not decreased at all. Um, and what the medication does for me is that it gives me a sense of time. So in my own case of my own mental illness, I... Uh, which is depression, I would, um, in the chapter of the minor gesture, I try to think about depression in relation to time. Not as in, um, again, quantitatively, some uh, depressives have a sense of too much time and some depressives have a sense of not enough time. Mm -hmm. But recent um, work on autopsies have shown that depressives have very, very different circadian rhythms than non-depressives. And in, I am going out on a limb here, but I would say that Anybody I've ever met on the spectrum of mental health neurodiversity has a very unusual relationship to time. And yeah, that's that's an example of my friend this past week told me. It, I said, I'll see you. So I'm meaning to talk to you. Let's get together sometime soon. And she said, it doesn't matter to me when it is because time is irrelevant. Right. And it's hard to believe, but that's what she's experiencing. And it, it's really my experience as well. Mm. So with neurodiversity and all kinds of neurodiversity, I think the first thing we have to recognize is that when there is an attempt to orchestrate that neurodiversity, to reorient it through medication, mm -hmm. It's an attempt to be able to live in this world. Right. In, in the world of conventionality. Right. So f without my antidepressants, there might be a world that I could invent. But the world in which I live doesn't compose well without them. Right. Because I live in a world that's very striated in terms of certain kinds of presuppositions like time. Yeah. So... And it, the other thing I would say just off the top is that it's, the work of people who are bipolar has been incredibly important to the neurodiversity movement. The only reason I don't talk about it is that 
there's another book to be written. Yeah. And there have been, Suzanne Antonetta has written two extraordinary books about neurodiversity and, and her own experience of being bipolar, and has opted to return to her meds. Almost every bipolar person, my father's bipolar, has had more than one decision-making processes for or against meds. Bipolar folks have a harder time with meds, generally speaking, um, because of the way that they tamper with the intensity, yeah. with the qualitative And they can often push it too far down in the other direction. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, the, the great thing about being bipolar are the highs. Right. But they're also <laughs> the things that encourage your friends and family to tell you to get back on meds. Because exactly. that's when you're doing some weird stuff. Yeah, and, and it scares us because it's not organizable. So I try really hard. I, I don't know if I'm successful in the minor gesture to not in any way moralize. I don't think it's bad to in take meds. Direction. I don't think it's good to take meds. Right. I need to take meds. I wish I didn't need to take meds, right. but this, I do. This is something I've seen from a number of different voices that it's, it's not a case where we're going to militate against, well, maybe against psychiatry, particular kinds of psychiatry, but not militate against the idea of medication. But we're going to start to be critical or, or just more aware of some of the predominant techniques that have been deployed to manage these difficult populations yeah. who don't fit into this model of yeah. neurotypicality. Totally. So we might say we're going to tactically deploy in our own personal kind of toolkit such and such med. But I think the reason, and we're already, we're already gone too far in this, this sort of discussion because the reason why this comes up is that there is this predominant manner in which these kind of people are treated and pathologized and, and sort of pigeonholed into... Uh, a position of, of illness or, or of some kind of disability. And I think, yeah. I wonder, do you think that this idea of neurodiversity coexists with the idea of mental health, mental illness, or does it supplant them? Should mm -hmm. it supplant them? Well, I'll give you an, um, an account that I'm still digesting, um, which had a really big impact on me. So I run the Sense Lab, and um, I started the Sense Lab about 15 years ago, 14 years ago. And we've never had membership. And the way we work is that if you get invested, you get invested, and it alters the conditions of what we can do. And that's never been a problem. There's never been somebody who got invested that wasn't interesting. I mean, it's really interesting how that works. It was pretty clear to me as I moved further and further into a thinking around neurodiversity that we were attracting a lot of neurodiverse people. And part of that was probably because as soon as you have one neurodiverse person, another neurodiverse person might feel a little bit safer but also because so much of our ways of working were interested in accommodating for neurodiversity. But still, a lot of our activities, the majority of our activities tend to be on the neurotypical side of things, organized in terms of time, um, sitting on chairs for a long yeah. period of time, or sitting on, you know, or... That's kind of how organization <coughs> works anyway. You're right. already a, a buying into something. And... And anybody who comes to the Sense Lab through the university, and not everybody comes to the Sense Lab through the university, but a lot of people do, has already been, their bodies are already more docile from the experience of being in the university and being in school before then. And so they're already passing as neurotypical mm. to a certain degree. Now, the classical autistics that I work with don't pass, and uh, which doesn't mean that none of them are in university. Both DJ Savarese and Jamie Burke have gone through university. Nick Pencel just finished university. So there definitely are more and more examples of classical autistics going through university. But still, they're very recognizable as autistic. They also don't speak with their mouths right. um, and so on. 
Well, we had an event in March um, called Techniques for Neurodiversity where we invited two non-speaking classical autistics. Both Adam and Tito are non-speaking classical autistics. Tito Mukhopadhyay, uh, we published his book in our Open Humanities Press book series called Plankton Dreams, which is an exquisite book. But it's, it's a book um, that uh, he had a lot of difficulty publishing because it doesn't fit into the normative structures of how we like to see autistics or neurodiverse folks. Mm -hmm. So it's not a memoir, and it doesn't right. explain autism. There's already rules for how to be oh, a good totally, autistic. Totally. And, and this is an extraordinary book. I think everybody who's listening to this should read it, Plankton Dreams. It's an account... It's kind of an anthropological first contact with neurotypicals. It's mm, it's really extraordinary. That awesome. So anyway, we invited these two folks to the Sense Lab around an event that was to be determined, which ended up being an event where we read Spinoza, and we did photography work and other kinds of practices, three days, and it was palpable to me and to everybody in the room how much people who are regu re uh, regularly at the Sense Lab became more visibly neurodiverse. Mm. So having these two autistics in the room gave the other folks a kind of opening right. to become less, to pass less. Mm -hmm. And that led me to think, so to, I, I'm telling you this because of this question of mental illness and yeah, so yeah. on. In that environment, a new norm in a way was possible, right. which was difference. It shifted the whole thing. It shifted the whole thing. Because there was the invitation into that space of a certain kind of bodily difference that was honored. Yeah, it was allowed now. So I think the same thing with neurodiversity and mental illness. When you go up for a, a job and they ask you for your credentials, and in my case you have a couple years in a psychiatric institution, it's problematic. Mm. So what do you do? Well, you alter your CV, obviously, so it doesn't say that you were in a psychiatric institution. We don't generally no, no, get jobs. Yeah. You know? So we will go... You know, the tendency for anybody with a mental illness will be to think of themselves as mentally ill mm. when they're subtracting that from their CVs. Mm. Right? They're, they're, they're actively attempting to pass. Right. We're taught to do that. Right. Of course, I want to live in a world where being neurodiverse is interesting. Yeah. Where it would help you get a job, but right. we're not in that world yet. No. So, so I we think we still have to use the terminologies in some way. So I think I think there's like I would I think it would be naive to say that we live in a world that in any way accepts mental illness as a continuum of experience that is worthwhile. Right. Do I want to live in that no, world? It's, Absolutely. It's, it's yeah, vigorously suppressed. It's vigorously suppressed. Because but, I think because it identifying anything like a spectrum of neurodiversity because because I think we maybe it's it's a little bit misleading to talk only about like a neurotypical or a or a neurodiverse because yeah. it's this the whole the whole idea I think is this spectrum that opens up the idea that there is no one correct way of being conscious or being human yeah. or whatever um, the, the threatening thing about that is that it makes it what it actually does is it identifies that there is no neurotypical actually None. because you you're just already in that example you gave demonstrated that it's just contingent if there's a certain mm -hmm. door that gets opened mm -hmm. all the different things can flood through it mm -hmm. and and what were formerly neurotypical becomes neurodiverse yeah. yeah it's a question really of 
Um, I'll give you another example. A lot of people at the Sense Lab are, um, get overstimulated very easily, which is, which is a quality of, of, of neurodiversity. Different, different ways of not connecting or composing well with, with certain stimuli that are in our everyday environments. Mm -hmm. Now, I've never met a person, neurotypical, so-called, who, who, when really questioned, composes well with all the stimulus that mm. we're, we live with. Right. But some people uh, overcode in their relationship yeah, to the you, world you in a way that allows what, you them. You might call them coping mechanisms. Right, and so they drink or, or they get angry easily or they... Um, yeah. Whatever they do, I mean, or they they, but they shut down, they somehow or like obscure their own sensitivity. Yeah, and so what you get with people who are more palpably on on the spectrum of neurodiversity, more visibly perhaps, yeah. or more, is an incapacity to do that work, which is what fascinates uh, me. That's because what, that's what it is. It's like a shibboleth. You have to be able to say the code. Yeah, and then that's that's what makes you what you are. But what really bothers me about this as an artist is that of course in any art class we're trying to unteach neurotypicality we're constantly saying to people perceive differently be sensitive to the world differently but please when you leave this room become neurotypical again yeah. because you're not going to be able to survive well you know so right. so i think what you're saying is really important and i think i think ideally we could live in a world that would allow for different um ways of encountering those speeds and slownesses yeah I, I just calls to mind my own personal experience just right now driving here i was feeling a little bit nervous a little bit over caffeinated i think <laughs> and then i didn't really have an appetite and i recently readopted smoking cigarettes so i was doing all these things which are like strongly affecting my body mm. and strongly affecting my consciousness but the normal thing to do when you're driving down the road drinking a coffee smoking a cigarette is just think that's normal and you just go on. But I actually was experiencing all these big waves of intensity mm. from this like normal things that people do. Right. And you have to really actively suppress it and, and, and just pr sort of pretend that it's not having those huge yeah. effects. So I got here, my hands were sweaty and I was feeling kind of weird. Yeah. And, and, and I thought to myself, like, I'm, I'm pretty sensitive. And I realized like that's actually mm -hmm. the condition that we all inhabit. Mm -hmm. But we, we are variously good at yeah. Uh, yeah. denying that about ourselves. No, absolutely. And when do we need to deny it in order to survive? And what is the cost of that denial? And I think for a lot of people, the cost is way too high. Right. And that's a psychotic break. Yeah. And you have, it just that becomes an inevitable momentum. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I don't... I mean, it, it, and, and I think that, you know, you spoke earlier about intersectionality. I think that... It is absolutely necessary to bring the question of mental illness into the, dis into the discussion about racism and sexism and gender and so on Class. in order for us to not um, have such black and white ideas of the health spectrum, yeah. which we tend to have. Either somebody is mentally ill or they're not. Right. Well, I mean, I just think that that's wrong. There are all kinds of tipping points and there are all kinds of conditions where the tipping points are more or less aggravated. Yeah. And we also, you know, on that spectrum, one of the things I think about a lot is in the hormonal deviations of a body, of a body environment assemblage, there are incredible fluctuations like the ones you just talked about in relation to drinking. And think about all of the hormonal fluctuations of every woman who gets pregnant. Think about all of the hormonal Everything, fluctuations. all the time. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. And, and there's no, there's no way... Um, that we regularly in society attend 
to those fluctuations. So what we do is say you can or you can't. Yeah. But but there's much more of a range there. Right, right. And and um matter allowing ourselves to be sensitive to those things yeah or creating it really working robustly to create environments where life is possible under those conditions right. and i think that's what we don't do we don't do it in the university we don't do it in the workplace for right. the most part yeah uh, we don't do it in the family um, all these structures <laughs> yeah yeah we're still struggling with yeah, and those would be the kinds of microfascisms that that Guattari talks about. That yeah. these these are everywhere we turn. These microfascisms that say, under only under X conditions can you display X Y Z um, behavior. Right. With time for our interview running out, I shifted the topic of conversation to something close to my heart as a member of Trent's cultural studies department. Okay, let, let me put it this way. We're dealing in the cultural studies department at Trent with like always negotiating with the institution, negotiating with the bureaucracy, negotiating with administration. How do we get to do what we want to do? How do we humanities, uh, weird version of humanities, interdisciplinary, all these things that are like strikes against us. Um, and one of the things that the director of the program recently brought to me is he, he said, we need what we need to do is give them their own terminology and, and sell them what we're doing as like professional development or as like economically viable movement in the world and but we just need to trick them and then and then we'll just go about doing whatever it is we want to do I wanted to bring that to you because I think in some ways I think that's what you are doing with with the idea of research creation you take this category and then you really delve into it and see what it can do for you at the same time as coursing very well within the institutional frameworks Okay, if we go back to the to the question before about what the you know this tendency to speak about the real world and the and the educational world, the ivory tower versus the real world, I've always been very uncomfortable with that because it suggests that there's a place in the world that is without thought. I mean that you know that most people who say those words would deny that that's what they're saying. Yeah. But what it suggests is that there's another kind of simpler world, where these highfalutin the concepts are not really relevant. And that tendency, that way of thinking, has moved into the administrative structures in the university. So where we're increasingly in a university com com um, complex that is run. In, um, in an uneasy pact between thinking to the limit and orienting that thinking to the quote-unquote real world, mm. making it have value in the way that pre-existing forms of value are already operating. So I think what I would say is that you have to do exactly what that prof is saying and you absolutely never have to do what that prof is saying and that's why I'm he I hesitated on how to begin the question because yeah. and I'll start I'll start with a really concrete example sure. I, I I'm um, writing a grant right now on the concept of the para-institutional yeah this is this is great because this is what I how I think of what you do right so I I went and looked at, at the universities in Canada and their strategic directions. Now most of the strategic directions at Canadian universities are pretty boring, but there are a few universities, and it won't surprise you, that these are the universities 
that have really exciting strategic directions. Trent is one of them. Concordia is one of them. SFU is another one of them. York is another one of them. And as a Canadian, you know that I'm naming universities that have a certain kind of, they're a certain type of university, right? They're, they're, you know, in a system, I don't think it works like this in Canada, but in a certain way of thing, you could think of them as second tier universities, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the sort of core right. McGill, U of T, yeah. Queens, uh, UBC. They call, they call McGill Ivy, honorary Ivy Honorary League. Ivy League. So if you look at those honorary <laughs> Ivy League strategic directions, are super boring. And they fit exactly within the norms of a really ancient or like sedentary idea of what an academic um, establishment should be able to do. But the universities like Concordia, SFU, York, their strategic directions are very much aimed toward the para-institutional. Get your hands dirty, experiment with the outside, build with the community, um, and so on. Mm Now, the, I went to see the president at Concordia a few days ago in order to ask him what his feeling was in relation to the paradox of those strategic directions being, on the one hand, very, very exciting for the kind of ecological, relational approach that we are interested in, on the other hand, completely within the vocabulary of neoliberalism. Right. So how do we, how do we come to terms with that? The answer wasn't satisfactory. Because I think the paradox wasn't as alive for him as it is for me. And I don't think he really understood what the problem was. I think it's because it's a native language to him, probably. Exactly. That's what everybody told me. I think Because it, 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 he's a great guy. Like, this is not a criticism of, no. of him. And I thought, wow, when it's become the native language, there's real danger. So when you, a student says, I need to open the door toward this limit... I actually think in the best case scenario, we need to follow through that limit case all the way to the top. Because that's what allows the university to push its boundary mm-hmm. as a space of experimentation. Right. But even as I say that, I know the problem. Yeah. Right? But, but like you say, the inverse is simultaneously true, which means you can't just allow the administration to dictate all the terms and move forward because that's not even actually how it works. Maybe that's an illusion that some people in administration or the tendencies that coalesce as administration want us to think. And that's maybe what some professors and faculty and students want to think because it's easier to think that they decide what the university is and we work within it. But I think what you're saying is whatever we are doing is shifting the whole framework, including the administration. Exactly. So then you have to have something like you have to have a strong concept of duplicity. <laughs> and, um, and I don't mean, like, I really think a politics of duplicity. I mean, really thinking it through it, and pushing the concept of duplicity toward maybe the, the concept of double articulation in Nietzsche or Deleuze and thinking about in a, in a, in a set of potentialized operations, there's going to be a certain expenditure. I mean, think Bataille. Think about... And the expenditure, in my experience of the university, or in, in any kind of sort of macro setting, macro political setting, mm-hmm. is um, going to be diluted it, it, where the bureaucracy is at its strongest, which actually is both at the higher administration and in the disciplinary model. I think the, those two bureaucracies are equally powerful mm-hmm. in terms of their setting the limits of what can be done. But there are all these transversalities. Yeah. And so what are, the, what are the techniques that can activate the transversality in a kind of 
strategic essentialism, yeah, yeah. let's say, that allows there to be a co-encounter with what is possible and, and where the potential is. And, and I think that that's, I mean, if you follow this thought to the limit, I think you have to leave the university. And yeah. that's always what I struggle with. Like, at a certain point, not as a student, but, but that's, as, that, you that's know. the para that's the para institutional because it's it's not that it's anti institutional or out of the institution it's it's has a relationship to yes. it so the idea of you leaving the institution you don't have to leave the institution your body doesn't have to but sometimes it does and sometimes yeah, your yeah. ideas do yeah no exactly and then you have to think about um, I mean we've been thinking a lot about we're we're working on this institute the three ecologies institute yeah. Um, you know, we're trying to think of, a, of an, an environment for learning and thinking that is free and accredited, unaccredited. Um, we're working with alter economies. Um, we're learning all about um, the idea of speculating on equity instead of speculating on debt. We're working really hard at all kinds of levels to think this through. But what we're realizing in doing that is that there's always, as everywhere, a danger of institutionalization. Right. So the, the mistake that is often made is assuming that if you leave the institution, you don't fall into another institution. Institutionalization mm -hmm. is everywhere. So I prefer to think about it as Spinoza does as a pact. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of pact that is the, the institution, and we're all composing in that pact. But there are definitely moments in the composition where there might be a homeostasis. And then, and then you'd have to come back to the question of effort. What are the what are the downsides of using the energy to shift the homeostasis, and what is the necessity of stepping sideways? And I think again, this is super pragmatic when you yeah. do which. Yeah. And students generally don't have don't know that they have as much movement as they do, and sometimes they don't have the movement. And I think. Um, that's why every time I talk to a student, I begin with the question, do you have a good supervisor? Mm. Because I actually think the supervisor, my role as a supervisor is to create the conditions for the student to think at the limit. Mm. And for them as much as possible not to worry about how to fit their thinking into the institution. That's yeah. my job. Right. If, you know, at some point in the context of a PhD, we need it. To, to, to have a form that looks like a PhD. The final hoop, but yeah. But I try really hard to not have them have that in mind through the process. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you have to be really on your toes. You know, I've got a partnership grant, a Shirk partnership grant mm -hmm. worth $3 million, and it's turned me in some ways into much more of an administrator. Mm -hmm. There's a real downside. So there's a lot to administer with that much money. Yeah, and so you have to think about it. And I'm constantly thinking about it. Does it allow for things that wouldn't be possible without it? Absolutely. But it's also as important for it to end. Mm -hmm. If I turned this kind of sort of government-focused operation into a long-term proposition, the sense hub would be lost. Mm -hmm. It's totally clear to me that it has to be a temporal, like an eclipse, really, in a process. And so that's what I mean. Like, is there is there a mobility there? When I was an administrator at Concordia, when I was the director of the PhD in, in the humanities, I made a lot of changes. But the next person who came in made a lot of their own changes, which yeah. undid a lot of my changes. And, and it's very, very hard not to feel deep resentment for a structure that kind of turns on itself. And that's the, that's the kind of the dinosaur quality of the university, whereas the parainstitutional has a dynamic. Right. It's capable of moving more quickly. Yeah. And these have to compose together, I think. Yeah. Or, or when they compose together, they do their best work. Because the university, obviously, and I think maybe it's worth 
finishing there, the university brings with it an extraordinary infrastructure. Right. You know, it attracts amazing I mean, people. There's nowhere else still. There's nowhere else to do the kinds of things that we do get to do still. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So I don't want to put it down, but I want to think beyond its limit. I want to think with students. The smartest people in the university by far are the students. The students are the ones who are reading all the time and exploring and pushing beyond the limit. The profs are often much more sedentary. So we need to be able to move at the speed of that thinking that is the student, the student body or whatever. Yeah. And that's what we tend to lose when we begin the disciplinary process. You hear that, students? <laughs> to us awesome okay so what what's next for you what's the next big thing or small thing that you're that's calling your attention um i'm gonna be in the studio this year i just finished a big artwork i worked for the last nine months on a piece which is now in uh, at the museum of fine arts in ghent until the middle of august a work called threadways and um now I'm working on a continuation of, an, of a work I started a few years ago called the Slow Color Project, which is interested in the synesthesia between smell and color and working again with textile. My work is slow, really, really slow. So, so you're going to focus on that right so now. So I'm going to really focus on that. At the same time, like I said, we're continuing the work on the Three Ecologies Institute. Mm-hmm. And thinking really, really hard with a very exciting group of economists called the Robin Hood Collective, who are working with blockchain to develop really kind of a new economics. And they've chosen the Three Ecologies Institute as their test case. So we're working with them. So there's going to have to be a follow-up to this because now we have, now I definitely need to know all about that stuff. (laughs) So we'll leave it though. For now, thank you so much, Aaron Manning. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Such a pleasure. Great questions. Thanks. Thank you. This concludes our feature interview with Aaron Manning, Research Chair in Philosophy and Relational Art at Concordia University and Director of the Sense Lab, a laboratory for thought and motion. For more information about Aaron and the work that she does and the people she works with, check out the Sense Lab's webpage at senselab.ca. For more information about our show, Reciprocal Presupposition, or to listen to any of our back episodes, you can check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash reciprocal presupposition, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash reciprocal presupposition. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening and have a great night. I'm Joshua Noiseau, and this has been Reciprocal Presupposition, Radically Relational Radio. (laughs) 